were growing up in America before the lawyers took it over and ruined it on us. And yeah. In my day, if a kid fell off the monkey bars and chipped a bone in his arm, that was tragic, but it was funny to the rest of us. <laughs> Certainly wasn't reasons to take the monkey bars off the playground. We all did dumb things. That's how you learn not to do dumb things. C.S. Lewis said suffering was God's megaphone. That's right. You do dumb things, it hurts, and then you learn not to do it. But we're the most painted verses. And we, I'll give you an example. When I was 12, someone told me to get a ball jar, a canning jar. Find some dry ice, put it in the jar, put the lid on it. So I said, what's going to happen? They said, it's going to blow up. And I said, cool. Where do I get dry ice at? And they said, the ice cream man. So one day I heard the ice cream man coming down my street. I run out with one of my mother's canning jars. And I asked, you got any dry ice? He said, what you going to do with it? I said, I'm going to put it in this jar. I'm going to put the lid on it. And it's going to explode. Ice cream man says, oh, here's your dry ice. That's the America I grew up in. Yes. And of course, that night, my mother was at our kitchen table picking shards of glass out of my forehead. <laughs> and my father came walking in. How'd that happen? Someone told me you put dry ice in a ball jar, it'll, it'll, it'll blow up. <laughs> so knowing that, you were just staring at that jar, waiting for it to blow right up in your face. Yep. <laughs> what am I raising, a moron? Could see why you'd think that. I never did it again, because that had been really dumb. That's how you learn. <laughs> my nephew's coming by. This poor kid's 11 years old. I look at him. Where's he going? My sister said rollerblading. I thought he was going to disarm a nuclear device. <laughs> poor kid looked like the Michelin man. Foam, rubber, plastic everywhere. She says, I don't want him to get hurt. I said, hurt? He could take a semi at 80 miles an hour in that house. <laughs> Falling on concrete is supposed to hurt. See, that's your incentive to learn to stay upright on the rollerblades. They've ruined everything. Playgrounds. I took my granddaughter to a playground. What happened to playgrounds? The slide is five feet high, made out of plastic. She would go four inches and stop, four inches and stop, four inches and stop. That's not a slide, it's a scoot. Wee papa, wee papa, wee papa, wee papa. What did we have? We had a six-story high solid steel structure. About mid-July. Mid-July would hit a temperature of about 285 degrees. You lose two layers of skin on the way down. Another layer when you hit the ground like a flat rock on a pond. <laughs> Come back picking gravel out of your thighs. Yeah! Now it's wee papa, wee papa, wee papa. I wanted to shove her down the slide. I did. I wanted to shove her so she'd know what an exhilarating feeling of sliding. And I felt six iPhones on my back. Go ahead, old man. We dare you. Well, happy Father's Day, everyone. See, I, it's so self-seeking. It's like, I know I'm going to get it back because it's Father's Day. Like, when it's Mother's Day, it doesn't work like that for me. And so it's really, uh, it's uh, really cool. Um, so anyway, uh, glad you guys are all here and uh, hope uh, that uh, today is a special day for all of our dads and, of course, uh, for many, it's also uh, a sad time, a time of reflection and uh, longing uh, for dads that are already gone and for others uh, that brings a lot of heartache on days like this as well. But in the end, uh, 
May this day remind you that you have a heavenly father uh, who desperately loves you uh, and is in fact uh, the perfect dad. Uh, and so anyway, let's uh, kind of jump in here because uh, I've got a lot of ground I want to cover. And I, I want to start by telling you guys that I think we need more wolves in the church, more wolves in the church. And I know that is kind of an odd sort of a thing, but I'm, I'm kind of getting tired of the sheep mentality that is uh, often seen in the church, especially among men. Now, of course, I'm, I'm not taking anything away from the very powerful sheep and shepherd metaphors that are found in the scriptures. I'm not, I'm not talking about anything like that. Uh, and I'm not talking about wolves in sheep's clothing, right? You know the types, right? They come in, they're looking for someone to devour, so they, they act like they're something that they're not, and then they you know, pounce and devour uh, whoever they can. I'm not, certainly not talking about uh, a sheep in wolves' uh, clothing, uh, which is, you know, all bark, 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 and all this noise and ruckus, all bravado, but nothing ever actually comes from any of it. But I, I want more alpha wolves at Beacon, and I think it would be a really good thing for us. Now, here's the thing. In pop culture, the alpha wolf is known as a solitary and a fierce creature. That's why we have so much wolf lore, right? And so you have Little Red Riding Hood and the Big Bad Wolf. And the Three Little Pigs, this is the version I remember of the wolf. Um, some of you will recognize that. You're like, what a lousy art thing. Yep, uh, that's exactly what Saturday mornings was all about for us. And, uh, you know, so you got the Three Little Pigs. They had a bad run-in with, uh, with the wolf. And the boy who cried wolf. That was tough because in the best version of that fairy tale, he was actually eaten by the wolf at the end of it. And because wolves weren't scary enough, we, you know, we created werewolves um, who, you know, like, you know, on a monthly cycle became these deranged sort of uh, psychotic types of wolves that would, would just tear and all sort of emotional craziness going on with the transformation. And I don't know how that whole rumor started, uh, or anything like that, but, um, but I do know that there is a very powerful lore uh, mythology associated with wolves, and early researchers actually buttressed a lot of our darker fears about wolves, and so in the 1940s, there was a man named Rudolf Schenkel, university in Switzerland, he studied wolves in a zoo and came to all sorts of conclusions about them talked about how they were competitive and often violent with each other. And this, these ideas were taken over in the 1970s by an American scientist uh, and uh, in a book called The Wolf. He popularized many of these same earlier ideas and talked about the alphas and how to get ahead and you needed to be domineering and aggressive and violent. And, you know, these are just sort of the main ideas that are out there, which is why there's memes, you know, like, like this. I love my enemies because they taste so good. And so, you know, I don't think it's hard to see why ideas like this, taking what's yours and viewing everyone as a rival and keeping everyone in their appropriate place in relation to you and this sort of take no prisoners attitude, I think it's easy to see why this can be destructive. So here on Father's Day, why do I persist with this extended metaphor? See, I think... 
you know, we're, we're here, I'm talking about alpha wolves because the researchers, they got it all wrong. They got it all wrong. And I think there's a whole lot more that we get to learn from the natural world, including wolves. Because, you see, when studying wolves, especially the alphas, which exist in both the male and the female version, you know what we end up seeing? We find creatures that know how to get the job done. They get the job done. And I think that's what we need more of in the American church, and certainly in the church in Long Island, and even, even here at Beacon. We need to get the job done. We need to get to the work of the kingdom of God. We need to figure out that work, and we need to simply get it going. We need to get it done. We need to reach lost people. We need to heal hurting people. We need to care for lonely people. And we have to proclaim, as the scriptures say it, the day of the Lord's favor so that we can be a blessing to the peoples of the world. And it is remarkable what God will accomplish through one man committed to God's ways. It is remarkable. And I want to take a look this morning at a few of the alpha wolf kind of adventures that we see happening in the scriptures. So open, if you would, in the Bible to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to be looking at the story of Abraham, a single lone wolf, a man called by God to do a great thing. When you study Genesis, you'll see that there's, a, there's the first two chapters that goes great for humanity. Chapter 3, everything kind of takes a harsh turn downward, and it continues to spiral downward all the way through Genesis chapter 11. Genesis 12 is God's plan for reversing all of the horror that took place between 3 and 11 in the book of Genesis. That's where we're at here, Genesis 12, starting in verse 1. Verse one. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went. As the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. The Alpha adventures begin by going where God goes. I think we see that here, right? Because it says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land, I will show you. But one of the things I love about this is it's not just that he said to go, which of course he does, he says go, but it's also that he says, go to the land, I will show you, which I, I like because it means that when he gets there, God's going to be there. And so how is it that we can have great confidence in going wherever it is God tells us? Because he's already going to be there when we get there, which means we're actually going to join God in the work he's already doing over there. And this is an incredible thing to know. We are going where God is already calling us, where God is calling us to, but where he is already at work. And so we get to go and join him in that great work, which I think is an incredible privilege when you think about it. And so it says in verse 4, so Abram went. 
Just like that. He went. You know, leaving his family, I think that would have been a huge, unbelievable risk. I'm sure travel in that day was uh, certainly risky, especially for a 75-year-old man who had a wife that apparently could still turn heads. And so that was something interesting, traveling through hostile territory and all of this kind of thing. And, and yet Abram does the thing that God calls him to do. He goes. And alphas are risk takers. They are willing to put it on the line when God says to. And God, in this case and in many cases, he doesn't always show you the final plan. That's one of the things. He's like, I'll show you when you get there. I'll tell you all about the land. I'll tell you all about the sacrifices. A whole lot of them you're never going to know until they come upon you. There's a whole lot that we don't actually get to see when God says go. What we want is we want God to say go, and we go, all right, tell me what's coming next. Tell me what my next step is. Tell me what I'm going to sacrifice. Tell me what I'm going to lose. Tell me what it's going to cost me. Tell me what it's going to cost my family, my tribe. Tell me. Give me a list. It's no problem then. I can do it if I can, you know, pro, con. I can make a decision as to whether or not I really want to go with the thing you're doing. With the, no. You go where God has called you to go. He is already there. And it takes great courage because we very often have no clue as to what he's going to do when we get there. That's what an alpha would do. So where is it that God is calling you to go? I don't mean that generally. I mean specifically you. Where is God calling you to go? You know, there's another great go in the Bible. It's actually from Jesus in the New Testament. He tells the disciples to go into all the world. It's called the Great Commission. Make disciples of all the nations baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus had shown us and commanded us. He told his followers to go. There is this thrust of this command to get out into the world to accomplish the mission of God, to introduce people, to bring them in, to fold them in to this family. So we have this uh, spiritual life inventory that we do at Beacon. And so we call it the five life practices. We give it to the covenant members and others who want to take it. And it's just a little assessment that helps you gauge kind of where you're at. And you can take it year to year to year. And you can see progress or not in different areas of spiritual disciplines. And so, you know, we talk about knowing Jesus and loving your spiritual family and living a questionable life and intentionally making disciples and blessing your neighbor. And so there's five major categories. That's why we call the five life practices, of course. But there's a whole bunch of questions and you take this. Anyone want to just... Take a wild guess as to which of these categories almost always comes out lowest on a person's inventory. It's the go. It's the bless your neighbor. Almost without fail, it will be the lowest category for all of us. It's risky to do it. What are my friends going to think? Oh, man, people are going to think I'm a Jesus nut. I don't need the Jesus nut on the block. Who wants to be a Jesus nut? You know, I mean, they're going to they're look at me. They're going to avoid me. People are going to want to talk to me because I'm like, Jesus that and Jesus this. And they're going to tell me, no, you know, I'll just tell, I'll just share my faith by my actions. Right? That's a great one. We always say, well, I'll just share my faith by my actions. You know, the way I live, I don't need to say anything specifically. I'll just, how's that working for you? You guys have been living in such a way that you just got people beating down your door asking you to learn about Jesus. 
They're going to ascribe anything good you do, any value you bring to their lives or to your community to something else unless they actually hear you say it. Unless they understand what is the backdrop, what frames out the questionable life that you're living. We have to go. We've got to proclaim. Because blessed are the feet of those who bring good news. It seems that everyone who knew Abram knew of his trust in God. So can the same be said about us? Another alpha wolf adventure that we get to see in Abraham's life is that he built a wolf pack. So how do you build a wolf pack? Dad jokes. It's Father's Day. That's how you build a wolf pack. And so here we go. We're going to give you the absolute best of the dad jokes, but you are going to judge them. And so we clap if we love it, we groan if we don't. So here we go. We're going to equip you today with the absolute best of the dad jokes. So did you hear about the dad who invented a car that runs on herbs? I think he invented time travel. Ah! No one? Not even Alex? Alex, give me a clap. No? You're like the king. All right, we got one. All right, you like one. All right, sorry. All right, we'll do the next one, all right? You hear, about the, you hear about the yacht builder that had to work from home? His sales went through the roof. <laughs> All right, we got a couple. Any groans on that one? All right, now a couple groans. All right. What did the buffalo say to his son as he walked out the door? Bye, Bye son. <laughs> Listen, ladies, if he can't appreciate your fruit, puns, then you need to let that man go. That's it. That's all I got for you. That's on the, on the I got a couple groans on the mango. Okay. Listen, God tells Abraham to start a pack. He's telling him to start a new clan. He's telling him to leave his family. He's telling him to start a tribe of his own. And I think this is such an interesting idea for us. You know, for many years, researchers believed that wolves were actually these solitary creatures. And so they would break off for most of the year. And it was only during the need for like a big hunt when you couldn't take down a giant animal that the wolves would come together and figure out how to work together. And then, you know, they would come together for mating. And that was it. They were solitary creatures until that time. But that actually isn't the reality in any way. They couldn't have been any more wrong, right? We have this idea. We talk about, you know, the price of being a sheep is boredom. The price of being a wolf is loneliness. Choose one or the other with great care. And if you say it with a dramatic voice, it sounds pretty powerful. <laughs> Choose carefully what you will do next. But the reality is that a wolf is more like this. Because these packs aren't these, these solitary, the wolves aren't these solitary creatures. They're actually exceptionally communal. You might think of the Alpha as the pack patriarch. He's the adoptive father, if not the literal father. He's dear old dad. And so we want to build a wolf pack. See, an emerging Alpha Wolf will eventually leave the territory that he grew up in and he will carve out a territory, a place where he will be able to do what he was meant to do. And he'll build a pack to do it. And it might be a small pack, it might be a large pack, but it is fiercely his. You know, wolves are monogamous creatures. They mate for life and the mates together share in the building up of the pack. They tend to the pups together. They even adopt others into their packs. The alpha never abandons his pack. Never. 
He will make certain that every pup reaches maturity so that it too can be sent out into new territory and build a pack. Abraham started his call with his wife, his nephew, Lot, a few other miscellaneous people. But very quickly we watch as the Israelites start to fold other people into their pack. So they reach out, right? And and you start going through the story and you hear of Tamar and Rahab. And you hear of these others who are being, being folded into this wolf pack that we call the Israelites. And then when when the the Israelites are scattered and the New Testament comes along, we find that the Jewish people are scattered all over the Roman Empire and there are all of these God-fearers who are with them. These are the Gentiles who, who became lovers of the God of Israel and the people of Israel. They were folding people into the broader pack. Jesus comes on the scene. He busts down all of the racial and ethnic categories and he shows that all people on earth can be part of the Jesus pack. This is one of the most radical parts of his message. It wasn't this sort of nationalistic kind of a thing. And I think God, he longs to give a man an increasing area of influence. He longs to do it. Abraham, one man coupled up with trust in a good and a powerful God. Sprinkle in the obedience and the courage. And God says, I will bless the world through you. You. This one man. This isn't arrogance. It's not swagger. This is a settled confidence that, that God wants to do amazing and eternal things through your life. We get to build our pack. You know, I, we were out, Cheryl and I, we were, on, uh, uh, we were on vacation a few weeks back, a couple months ago or something like that, and we were visiting a church out east. And who, uh, there was a guy there who happened to be from Long Island Youth Mentoring. And uh, he didn't know who I was, and I kind of knew them, and I know their ministry very, very well over the years. And I know a couple of you guys know it because you have, you have been involved with them for a long time. And I mentioned we're from Beacon Church, and he goes, oh, man, I, got to, I didn't ask you guys if I could tell their story. Anyway, here it goes. Sorry. <laughs> I see Larry. So anyway, Larry, I'm about to. So anyway, um, so uh, I should have asked. So anyway, we, we're, we're, we, we were talking with this guy, and he says, you know, two of the best, guy, best guys we've ever had are from Beacon, from the church that, you know, the, the church you're a part of. Larry Cavagnetto and Rohan Ramdahl. I'm like, yeah. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, that's... So they, they get involved in this ministry and they invest their lives in kids who need a role model. What are they doing? They're expanding their pack. They're expanding their area of influence. And they're doing it in a way that we get to be proud of. To hear those stories. And he went on, he told me a bunch of stories. You should talk to Roe and Larry about it because it's pretty incredible. They find an area of influence and then you grow your area of influence. And this is a gift that God gives us. There was this pack of wolves. Uh, it was uh, studied for 15 years every single day. Literally, every day, researchers put eyes on this pack of wolves and documented everything that they learned from. They were the most observed wolves ever in all of history. It was in Yosemite National Park. And they discovered there what they called the Uber Alpha. It was what they, were, they would refer to as the perfect wolf. 
If there was ever a perfect wolf, this was it. His collar tag was 21. They came to call him 21. So they, they said that 21 would fight off six enemies if they would attack him. He would never lose a fight. He was just incredibly powerful and smart, uh, very wise. They even used that word to describe him. He also amazingly showed restraint so that he never killed an enemy. Another wolf, a pack, a, a rival clan, tribe, whatever, however you want to describe it, never killed him. That was super unusual in areas where a lot of the wolf-wolf conflicts would happen. 21, he was this perfect wolf. He ended up leading this giant pack. Perhaps they said the lar- it was certainly the largest wolf pack ever observed in nature, and it was possibly one of the largest that has ever existed because of the unique circumstances that was taking place in Yosemite at the time. In Yellowstone, I'm sorry, it was at Yellowstone National Park. This wolf overcame every obstacle. And they say wherever he led his pack, they thrived. No challenge was too great. No, no stretch of famine would rattle them or disband them. No attack from the outside. They had a a ridiculously high percentage of their pups who were reared to maturity. He was the perfect wolf. They taught the next generation. They thrived. He was a true alpha. Listen, men, build a pack. Build a pack. You might say, listen, I don't have any kids or my kids are grown. Now what? I'm not talking about your kin. (laughs) None of this has to apply directly there. It certainly would apply there if you're a dad, but it doesn't simply apply there. We have men here at the church who are building their packs at work or in their neighborhoods or with their extended families or through organizations. They're finding out ways how to build their pack and extend their sphere of influence. We have men who build their pack through foster care through adoption, mentoring, friendships. Young men, you might say, oh, it's going to be years before, you know, I'm I'm having kids or building a pack, right? Build packs now among the students that you have influence with. You can do that today. That's a, that's a, find, find younger men than you. Build a pack there. And what you do there is you, you model for them and you show them the Jesus way. This is such an incredible privilege that we have been given. If you, might, you might say to me, yeah, but I don't have any area of influence. I don't have you know, anyone that I, I, don't, I don't have friends like that. I don't have people that I'm connected to in that way. I don't have many friends at all even, you might say. And I say, great, then go back and see adventure number one. Just Go. Get out there and do the work that God is calling you to. Expand your area of influence. We have, we have guys here expanding their area of influence through the church. Men who are training up kids in Kids Quest. We have men mentoring students in Ignite and Fusion Student Ministries. We have men who are leading other men and boys both in small group life and in discipleship groups. Extending their sphere of influence. All right, another alpha adventure is to protect your pack. 
Protect your pack. So when I say protect, I want it to include everything, right? So it's the most comprehensive way. You protect and you provide and you nurture and you strengthen and you guard and you equip and you train. All of these kinds of things. That's what I'm talking about when I say protect your pack. Abram, we would see Abraham, uh, he was later going to be seen going to war to protect Lot and you know, he was trying his best to figure out what to do with Hagar and, and Ishmael and, you know, working through some struggles with Sarah and trying to figure out what was best for his tribe. And so sometimes he did great and other times he didn't do so hot at all. But there was this desire, this pleading that he would have sometimes with God himself for, for protection and for mercy for entire cities, trying to protect the people that might need protecting in those cities. He would plead with God to protect them. See, there's an instinct, I think, that has been, been woven into us, uh, this desire to, to defend, to protect. I remember uh, there was this time, Cheryl and I, we saw this conflict. The kids were young, so I don't know how, it must have been many years ago, but we were going over to uh, Cheesecake Factory and uh, over at the Source Mall, which I guess isn't the Source anymore. But anyway, we were over at the Source Mall and uh, going to some brunch or something, and uh, the kids, they were all little. They must have been seven and down, um, uh, something like that. And a little fight started breaking out in the parking lot. And so it was over a parking spot because, you know, that's always worth fighting over. And so these two people, they both wanted it. Someone took it. They, and, and they're yelling. And so I tell Cheryl, I'm like, I got to like kind of head over there, but I'm going to go like engage, like see what's going on and see if I can help this situation. So I walk over there and I'm like, you know, now there's like five or six of us, I think now involved because there were multiple parties here. And I was like, hey, so here's the deal. I'm going to brunch with my kids, like right over there. I'm coming from church. Like, I don't want to get into a fight, but like, here we are. <laughs> like, now I'm here and we're like arguing and like there's a big scene and people are getting nervous and they're grabbing their kids and they're running the other way. And what are you going to do? You're going to like, you're going to hit this older woman here? Like, what, how, this is going to end poorly for everyone. Like, you know, you need to stop and you need to walk away and you just need to kind of stop talking and kind of, and I was able to sort of like diffuse the situation and push them on. There's an instinct we have and we ought to. It is a good instinct. We protect the pack. You know, the researchers told us that uh, wolves, they're constantly fighting among themselves in order to get ahead but they're actually very communal animals. They say that wolves will rarely pass each other without some sign of affection. Isn't that beautiful? Some sign of affection. Often seen in, you know, snuggling and nurturing and wrestling and, and having just a blast together. In fact, alphas are rarely ever seen, rarely ever seen being aggressive toward their pack. I found that pretty surprising. I've had dads tell me that they want to they rule their, their families in such a way that their kids fear them. What? Managers, you know, they put a fear of God in their employees. That'll make them work. It's not very alpha wolf-like. Certainly not very Christ-like. Rather, the, the alpha, when they're roughhousing with their pups, which they love to do, it's like a big wolf thing, they, the total kick they get when they roughhouse with their pups, the alpha will regularly be defeated by his pups. Regularly roll over and show all the signs of submission and put the paws up in the air and expose their neck, teaching the pups what it means to take down a larger prey, a larger enemy, giving them confidence and building them up, using their imaginations to encourage 
You know, we call them predators, of course, because that's what they do. But for them, it's just providing for their, for their pack. And there are so many beautiful things that we see when we, when we see how they provide. There are stories told of 21 where he would, he would take a kill, he would make a kill when the pups were too young to join him in the hunt. And the, the pack would eat their fill while he took a nap. Which is actually something I guess we have in common, right? Dads come home from a long day of work and they plop down on the couch for a nap. So it's very alpha-like. Um, but, but, you know, like think of that picture, right? So rather than he take, him, him taking what's his first, rightfully his, his kill, he makes sure everybody eats. They say that one of the things they loved about 21 was that, you know, they have every, every litter, there will often be runts in the litter. Cheryl, I, I, this is years ago before... Um, I had met Cheryl, but she met the dog uh, later. We had a dog named Asia Minor. And uh, Asia was a Sharpay that I had gotten when I was in high school. We got it because I was working at a pet shop at the time, and one of the breeders came in, and they told us that they were going to get rid of this pup because she was the runt. They can't breed off of runt stock. And so breeders will often make sure that the, they can never breed. They'll kill them or they'll, they'll make sure that they can't breed again going to sign papers to make sure, because who wants to breed off of runt stock? We have this attitude, like the runt is a... And they would say that 21 would sometimes come back from a hunt, and he was clearly agitated. The rest of the pack would come and see him, and they would celebrate, and they would start eating whatever they were eating, and, and he would look around, searching, something he was unsettled until he went and found the runt, who had been ostracized from some of the other, the pack, he would often take some of the best of the kill and go bring it to the runt to make sure that he was building up even the weakest among them. And of course, we know alpha wolves are known to die in defense of their packs because no greater love has anyone than that. Listen, Christian men, I want you to hear this. God is calling you to a unique, I'm telling you, this is a unique role. It's one of power and passion. It's strength and it's sympathy. It's courage and it's compassion. This is a unique role that he is calling you to, and that's what it means to be an alpha male, a top dog. we got to get rid of these sort of toxic views of manhood that have seeped into the American church, and we have to recognize that the man that God uses will, in fact, be stronger than anyone predicted, and he will be more empathetic than even he thought possible. And his power is not going to come from bravado and chest thumping and pushing people down or climbing over people's backs or stepping on their necks or anything like that, but rather through the much harder, more courageous path of generosity of sharing, of mentoring, of building up, of integrity, of patience. Kindness is one of the strongest things you will ever do. So no doubt to protect, you may very well need a ferocious bite at times. But you will always need an unyielding strength and a courageous heart that is filled with love and empathy greater than you, than you will be able to muster on your own. So over and over in the Bible, we see God call a man to some great task. 
And these courageous followers of God, they trust in God. And then they step into that adventure. And often they are scared or they feel inadequate for the task. And they still courageously step into the role that God calls them into in order to be a blessing to the world. That was the original call on Abraham's life, to be a blessing to the world. That is, in fact, the mission of God, to be a blessing to the world. And there was this incredible moment in Genesis 15, 6. It says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And this is so vital. This is so key. So here we have Abraham. He's been told that his child, Isaac, is the child of promise. That in fact, his child is going to be the one through whom all of the world will be blessed. Abraham believes it. He trusts God that God is going to do this incredible thing. And then God says, I need you to sacrifice your son. I need you to, I need you to kill him. Abraham, how could it, how, this doesn't make any sense. And the writer of Hebrews explains it like this. He says, by faith, Abraham, when, test, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the death. What's going on here? So here you get Abraham. God says, go offer your son Isaac. And he's like, I can't offer my son Isaac. Isaac's the child of promise. But wait, God is telling me to do it. I trust God. So I'm going to do whatever it is God tells me to do. There's only one way out of this dilemma. It must mean that God's going to let me kill Isaac and then he's going to raise Isaac from the dead for some incredible reason. So I guess that's what we're going to do. And so Abraham goes on with this crazy plan, this really obscene request that God puts on him and he puts Isaac on the altar and the knife is raised and God says, stop, don't touch that kid, a hair on that kid's head. Which of course must have been unbelievable joy to Abraham. And God shows him that there's a ram caught in a bush. And he says, no, 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 take that ram and exchange your son with this ram. What's going on? Well, we know, of course, now. Abraham wasn't going to have to sacrifice his son because God was going to. That was the promise that Abraham had clung to. He believed that God would do what God would do and that it was good and that the blessing would still be poured out through him. Isaac wasn't going to have to be a sin offering. Why? Because Jesus was going to be the sin offering. An exchange was going to take place. And of course, now we see it. Now it makes such perfect sense. For Abraham, it was, must have been an unbelievable moment to see what God was going to do. Abraham's failures weren't going to thwart God's plan in any way because there would be one who would come, God's own son, the alpha male, the preeminent one, the first, the last, king of kings. All of these incredible titles bestowed, these titles of power and majesty and yet would sacrifice himself for us. He would secure our forgiveness and then he would turn around with just this incredible stroke of graciousness and mercy and he would turn to us the very sinners that he had just saved and he would say now go 
Do the work. Finish the mission of being a blessing to the world. So yeah, I want more Alpha Wolves at Beacon. This mission to bless the world, to lead people to salvation, to model strength and power and the compassion of Jesus to a world that desperately needs it. It is a massive and an awesome mission. And it may very well take a wolf to bless the world in the way that God wants from you.